Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Humble the Poet. He is a Canadian-born rapper, spoken word artist, poet, internationally best-selling author, and former elementary school teacher with a wildly popular blog with over 100,000 monthly readers. After the international best-selling success of his book, Unlearned, Humble the Poet is back with a new book, How to Be Unloved. That's a little bit later. We'll also meet Anuka Okuma. You know her as Detective Tracy Nash in the police drama series Rookie Blue. She's also known for her work on the television series Madison and Sue Thomas, FBI. Today we talk about her work as one of the stars and writers of the hit CBC show Working Moms. That's a little bit later as well. First, let's get to know Teddy Wilson, co-host of The Mightiest, a six-episode docu-series airing Wednesdays on the Discovery Channel that examines the science and ingenuity behind some of the biggest and most complex planes, trains, and ships that humankind has ever made and operated. From re-engineered Chinook helitankers fighting wildfires 24-7 in Southern California to a train that helps sustain life and connects communities, the series gives viewers an all access pass to every aspect of the vessels and the people around it as they embark on new and dangerous journeys. Teddy Wilson joined me via Zoom. They push harder than any other on Earth. They're big. The endless pursuit of perfection and precision. Fast. Mindful. This is just a small taste of uh, what we do. And mighty. Wow. This is the latest and greatest um, series in the Mighty franchise. So before this, there has been Mighty Ships, Mighty Planes, Mighty Cruise Ships. I was very lucky to host Mighty Trains for four seasons. And this show is really upping the ante with the franchise. And it's taking a look at the absolute mightiest planes, trains, and ships in the world. The machines are one thing, and it's cool. And we'll talk about those in a second. Uh, but a lot of the uh, places that you went and the things that you uh, saw... Uh, involve people doing very dangerous things. So it must take a certain breed of person to do that kind of work. Absolutely, it does. And I mean, this is people's life work, but it's also their passion. You know, in the first episode, I was aboard the USS Gerald R. Ford. It's the U.S. Navy's uh, biggest and most high-tech aircraft carrier. It's the biggest aircraft carrier in the world. And we were embedded with the U.S. Navy team for five days there. So getting to know some of the men and women who work on that ship was really incredible. Um, in an upcoming episode called uh, Lifelines, I'm, I embed with the crew of the Hudson Bay Railway for several days. We go from Thompson, Manitoba, all the way up to the remote community of Churchill. So getting to know the men and women who work on that train was just amazing. Aaliyah Jasmine is also uh, with the crew of the U.S. Navy's Blue Angels. She goes up in an F-18 and um, you know, the adventures are cool. The the um, vehicles and machinery are really cool. But getting to know the people behind them was a real uh, a real pleasure and a real honor. Those aircraft carriers are wild. Uh, they I was on the USS John Stennis, which I think at the time was the biggest aircraft carrier. And it was like an apartment building turned over on its side, like 3000 people lived on it or something. It was just absolutely enormous. And this whole kind of um, ecosystem of its own. It's really incredible to see. Yeah, it, it really is a city. You know, as you said, like three to 5,000 people living and working on these on these incredible ships. We were flown out to it in a military transport uh, plane. So we landed on it, which was an absolutely life-changing, mind-boggling experience. How so? Off. 
Well, just landing on it, they call it a, they say it's more like a controlled crash because you land very, very hard. You catch the, the cable or the wire that we've all seen in the Top Gun movies and you decelerate very, very quickly. And inversely, when you take off, you go from zero to about 250 kilometers an hour in 2.3 seconds. I believe it's, it, it's the fastest or if not one of the fastest land accelerations on earth so that was just taking off and and landing on it and then when we were on it being able to stand on the deck as f-18s and attack helicopters landed around you um was absolutely absolutely astounding i'm assuming you don't have a big breakfast before you do that takeoff from zero to 200 miles per hour in a few seconds definitely not and especially if you're me with like a little a little baby a little baby tummy <laughs> <laughs> and so you've described some of these things. Tell me a little bit about uh, the just the inner workings of some of these incredible things. We take it for granted that there's this incredible technology out there. And when I'm on a plane, I don't really think about how it works. I just simply know that I'm going to hopefully take off and land safely. And in between, everything is going to be uneventful. Tell me yeah. a little bit about what you learned that perhaps you didn't know beforehand about the planes and trains and ships and things that you saw. Well, I, I learned so much. You know, in, in another episode, I'm on board a, a ship. It's a yacht. It's one of the biggest yachts in the world. And it's one of the only discovery yachts in the world. So it cruises around with a lot of luxury, but then it also takes passengers on these really intrepid, fun excursions on uh, on submarines, on helicopters, and onto land. And on this yacht, it's called Scenic Eclipse, we cruised up in the Norwegian Arctic through the beautiful fjords, but it has technology on board where it doesn't actually drop an anchor. They don't want to drop anchors there too because it's a geologically and environmentally sensitive area. So instead of dropping an anchor, they have a system that positions them perfectly and keeps them in place using satellite technology. So this is really, really cutting edge tech on this ship, on this yacht, and it's one of, of many examples. You're listening to Teddy Wilson on The Richard Krause Show. See him on The Mightiest on the Discovery Channel. You know, on board the USS Gerald R. Ford, they have a very, very high-tech system for helping the handler, and the handler is the person who is responsible for everything that happens on the flight deck. They have this really high-tech system to help him keep track of what's going on. But you know, Richard, it's really interesting because that handler on this aircraft carrier actually prefers to use an old school system called a Ouija board. It's actually got little models of planes on it because he finds that spatially that is the best way to keep track of what's going on. So there's a lot of high tech stuff. There's a lot of old school low tech and, you know, just a lot of really, really smart people using it all to, to do their very difficult jobs. I think you have to have both because what happens when all the, you know, your electrical goes down and you don't have any of the high tech stuff to help you uh, figure out where you're going or where you need to be. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what was the mightiest? I mean, I don't know if you want to give that away, but what was the, the, the high point for you? I mean, just in terms of like sheer being absolutely astounded by something, for me, it was being on the aircraft carrier on that USS Gerald R. Ford. Uh, I come from a military family, too. I have some naval background in my family, as well as a lot of Army background. So it was very interesting to me. I've never served in the military a day in my life. I, I don't think I'd, I'd make it. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not made of strong enough stuff to do it. But it was really amazing getting to embed with this military team on this ship. Uh, I found it really, really fascinating. And then this, this uh, yacht that I was on, uh, going through the Norwegian fjords, through that Arctic territory, was very epic and mighty in its own way. 
But I mean, for me, I, I also really love being on this Hudson Bay Railway because mm. this is a, a railway that's a lifeline up to Churchill, Manitoba. I know you know a lot about the country. I'm sure you know that Churchill is not accessible by roads. So when this uh, railway went down just a handful of years ago because of flooding, uh, it really cut off that remote community. That's how they get all of their supplies up there by train freight. They can also fly stuff in, but that's very costly. So getting this um, railway and this train back running again was really key for that remote northern community. And it's actually owned by a company that's mostly made up of First Nations communities. So for me, that was a really uh, compelling and important story to tell. And just getting to know the people who make all of that happen was, you know, really, really life changing. So that was mighty in, in a different way. And then, of course, that train itself is very mighty. Running a heavy freight train over that muskeg bog-like land is absolutely an engineering feat. So it would be tough to pick, but those would be my top. You must have been around the world now several times. Is there a place that you haven't been uh, and perhaps a, a, a mighty, mighty machine that you still have on the list that you want to see? Oh, there's there's several. You know, I'd love to take the Trans-Siberian Railway through through Siberia. That's definitely a bucket list one. I've never been on um, any any like giant working rig ships, you know, working freight ships. Uh, so I would really, really like to do that at some point uh, in, in one episode this season. And it's, you know, I got to say, it's probably the mightiest episode of all. My co-host, Aaliyah Jasmine, goes up in an F-18 with the U.S. Navy's Blue Angels. She pulls six Gs. They can't use oxygen masks or uh, G-suits in the Blue Angels because they fly so close together, so they can't have anything getting in their way. And so that was probably the mightiest moment of the yeah. entire season. And I would love to tell you that I would love to do that, but I'm not quite as brave or courageous as her. So, What is it in your background uh, that, that has made you interested in pursuing this kind of uh, endeavor? I think for me, it's the notion of, of exploring and the notion of telling people's stories. I think you're probably very passionate about the same thing. I know you're a lifelong traveler. You love to travel and meet people when you're on the road. And so for me, that's the root of it. I find the machines really incredible, very mighty, very interesting. But I always especially love meeting the people who uh, who work on them and with them. And uh, because, you know, they always have very fascinating stories in their own right. And then in addition to that, uh, like you, I just love to travel. I love to see new places. And it's especially cool when you get to travel and do these really kind of out of this out of this world type things that I and Aaliyah get to do on this show. So, um, yeah, I feel really, really fortunate to get to do it. Well, I'm guessing now that you've been on uh, the yacht and on the aircraft carrier and all the other uh, sort of, you know, giant mighty machines that just getting on a regular plane or taking a regular cruise ship is not as appealing now. You know what? I think for most people it would be, but I really enjoy being between point A and point B. Hmm. I don't know what that says about me, but, you know, I like taking the streetcar yeah. and the city bus. <laughs> when I go on some of these trips, or as I did through Four Seasons of Mighty Trains, I enjoy the cab ride to the airport. For some reason, I just really like being in transit. So th this is a very good job for me, and being part of this franchise overall is great. Because I really do get a kick out of just being between points. It's super cool if it's on a, an aircraft carrier or on an incredible freight train <laughs> or on a luxury scenic yacht in the Norwegian Arctic. But honestly, if it's on the TTC, I still enjoy it. <laughs> I do. I don't know what that says about me. Well, that's the next series. That's what you yeah. have to figure out in the next series. Teddy, thanks so much. Thank you, Richard. Great talking to you.
That was Teddy Wilson on The Richard Krause Show. See him on The Mightiest on the Discovery Channel. Let's meet Anuka Okuma. You know her as the Detective Tracy Nash in the police drama series Rookie Blue. She's also known for her work on the television series Madison and Sue Thomas, FBI. Today we're here to talk about her work as one of the stars and writers of the CBC hit show Workin' Moms. She plays Sloane Mitchell, a publishing executive who becomes fast friends with Kate, the series lead played by Catherine Reitman. In this interview, we talk about the character and why the show has struck such a chord with viewers. Anuka joined me via Zoom from Los Angeles. Congratulations on Workin' Moms. Thank you so, so much. Seven seasons. I know. And so you joined in the fifth season. Tell me about what it's like to step into a show that is well-established, that has been around for a while, but it's 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 changing with bringing new characters in, and you were one of them. Yeah, well, I came in at the height of the pandemic, so there was very little, there was no socializing, there was right. get to work, put your mask back on. And stop talking. <laughs> so, so it was a, really, um, you know, it wasn't the normal experience where you're spending time with the cast and getting to know each other. So it was a very sort of isolated thing. Uh, and and I had binged the show. So when I when I got in there, I was staring at Catherine and Danny because I couldn't believe that I was talking to Anne and Kate. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So it was um it was different. It was totally uh the, the next year felt a lot better because I actually got to spend time with people. And, but it's a well oiled machine. They know what they are doing over there. So it felt nice to walk into something very established. Well, tell me a little bit about shooting during the pandemic because I spoke with a number of people who were shooting TV shows and they were split right down the middle. Half of them were like, oh yeah, we have more time now. It's not as hurry up and go, go, go all the time because of the protocols and masks and it just takes longer. So you have more time to think. The other half would tell me, I go by instinct. I don't want to sit there, you know, forever while we Lysol wipe everything down again for the hundredth time. So where do you fall on um, I fall in the latter. I, I don't like it. <laughs> Yeah. For me, especially, it's the it's the socializing. You know, I got in trouble in school as a kid because I just talked to everybody all the time. <laughs> and that's one of the things I love about this job is that time in between where you just sort of strike up friendships and and have great conversations in between scenes. And so there wasn't much of that going on at all. Yeah. And I found that very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, I guess, when you walk into a, a situation, like you say, which was a well-oiled machine, probably everybody else knows one another. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and for me, that first year, all of my scenes were with Catherine, so it was quite mm -hmm. appropriate because every scene I had was with her and I spent all my time with her. Um, but then, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been since then pretty great, great getting yeah. to know all of the women. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Sloan Mitchell. Uh, what, yes, do we yes. need, what do we need to know about your character, Sloan Mitchell? <laughs> well, she's certainly a take no prisoners kind of woman. Um, a very confident, confident. Uh, and I, I mean, I think she's pretty funny, like the things that she ends up doing in the show. Um, but yeah, I think she's, she's one of the, it's the most fun I've had playing a character, undoubtedly. And it's, it's been actually Pretty interesting. This summer when uh, we were shooting in Toronto, uh, I met a woman who had named her daughter after Sloan. No. 
And I met another woman who, who she kind of kept, I was at a restaurant. She kind of kept looking at me and I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on. Do I, do I smell do I have like, something on my face? face? Yeah. Like, what's going on? <laughs> and she left the restaurant and then she came back and she said to me, I just need you to know that I channel Sloan when I'm going into a business meeting. She's my favorite character. I love the show and thank you for your work. And it made my night. I couldn't believe it that the, the character has had that kind of an impact. And what do you think it is? Well, I mean, as you say, she's a take no prisoners type. Uh, uh, she's a publishing executive. But what do you think it is about that character that resonates so much with people? And I think particularly women. Yeah, I mean, Sloane's been playing in a, a man's world for many, many years. And so she's uh, she's definitely strong. And, and I wouldn't say that she had that many female friends before, <laughs> before she met uh, Kate and the gang. You're listening to Anuka Okuma on The Richard Krause Show. See her on Working Moms on CBC Television. So... So she has this certain amount of, she commands a certain amount of uh, attention and, mm -hmm. and she holds her own power. And I think that really resonates with women. It resonates with me. Like I channel mm -hmm. Sloan when I need to. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think that you bring to Sloan? I mean, uh, we all know that actors aren't the characters that they play, but you must connect on some level to part of her or, or I'm not an actor, maybe not. No, I think, I mean, those that I, um, that are close to me know all the facets of me, but I'm, I'm in real life, I'm, I'm a little bit shy and I certainly don't have the same kind of no filter as Sloan does, but it's, it's fun to pull those parts out of myself yeah. and get to, and get to do that and be that and, you know, maybe have a little bit more of that in my actual life because of her. <laughs> And you worked as one of the writers as well on the show. Uh, now, was that season five and six, or what? Uh, when did you start writing on the show? That was season six, and then this recent season seven. So yeah. I wrote one episode in six and two episodes. That's so cool. So tell me a little bit about uh, doing that while playing one of the, like. <laughs> and this is just me, my uh, inclination <laughs> would be to say, it's the Sloan show this week. <laughs> Put yourself in every scene, uh, probably uh, wear the most fabulous clothes you could find and drive a Lamborghini around. That's what I think I would do. But again, I'm not. Well, <laughs> thankfully, the great clothes and the great car were already oh, there. in before I showed up. <laughs> yeah. So that was great. But um, but no, it's it's for me, it, the experience is about learning how to craft a mm. show. And uh, so for me, I had a front row seat to Catherine Reitman's deal and I loved it. And and uh, it's definitely a group effort, the writing on the show. So there was there was even there were things that people wanted Sloan to do that I was like, I don't know about this. The actor in me doesn't think this is a good idea, but the writer in me was like, of course, it's the best thing to do for the show. So I certainly learned how to figure that out, balance the two, leave the actor out of the room and leave the ego out of the room and uh, write from a place of what's best for the character, what serves the story. <laughs> originated here in Canada and then found popularity there but I think it would have been a very different show if it had started there it was it's it, there's a frankness to it that I don't feel 
like would come uh, from an American production unless it was like uh, HBO Max or something. But just on a on a regular broadcaster, uh, you know, like it's on the CBC here. If it was on NBC or CBS or something there, I do not think it would be as frank as it is here. I would agree. I would agree. I, I, there's a, there's a TED talk you can find online somewhere where Catherine is um, talking about the origins of the show, and um, there's a there's a very specific theme to the TED talk that I I don't actually remember what the theme was. It was much deeper than I'm going with this part of the conversation. But the um, but what I remember was that she was saying that the show actually had been with an American. Uh, network in the beginning, and they just did not have the sensibility and understanding of this female perspective. And she said, thank you very much, but I have to go find someone who understands this. And she found the CBC. And, and, uh, and thank God that it happened that way. Sally Caddo. Yeah. Well, and I think there's that. And I think uh, from the points of view of inclusion and diversity, I think uh, this show um, speaks loudly here uh in a way that perhaps it may not uh in the u.s as well yeah definitely these uh it, it was a trailblazer and yeah. uh i think the canadian television landscape will miss this show terribly i, I know so i too. will <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to anuka ukuma one of the stars and writers of the cbc hit show working moms in this segment, we're going to meet Humble the Poet. He's a Canadian-born rapper, spoken word artist, poet, international best-selling author, and he's also a former elementary school teacher. He has a wildly popular blog with over 100,000 monthly readers. After the best-selling success of his book, Unlearn, Humble the Poet is back with a new book. It's called How to Be Loved with short chapters filled with insight, advice, and personal anecdotes from his own journey, the book is a guide to self-love that helps clarify your path inward toward the inherent love and value that is within each of us. It's perfect reading for this time of year. Humble the Poet joined me from his home in Los Angeles. My entire career is, is selfishly trying to learn about things, and mm. then, you know, my books are me sharing my notes. I'm, I'm the kid at the front of the class. <laughs> and uh, in my own personal life, I was trying to better understand uh, the challenges I was facing, both from a standpoint of receiving love from others, but also understanding love for myself. And um, I took a really deep dive. This is actually, I was thinking about it right before the pandemic. I, I had gotten in a relationship and things were getting very serious and I wanted to improve uh, the quality of partnership that I was providing. Um ironically it took me the other way and um you know mm -hmm. working on this book actually resulted in that relationship ending um as i had a clearer understanding uh of myself and um that i wasn't in a situation that i should have been in so it it was really a commitment to me trying to really understand what really is love and discovering very quickly that there's we are all so thirsty to feel love um but there are so many things that are just facsimiles they're not the real thing and uh, in my life, in my career, in my personal life, with my friendships, um, with almost everything I was doing, I was chasing all the wrong things. I was chasing affection in all the wrong places. And um, this book is a product of me trying to gain a better understanding of that and then simplifying it for other people who also feel like love is very complicated. Well, let's start 
sort of on a, on a very personal level then, is it possible to be in love if you don't love yourself first? I think it's possible to discover love in your relationship with other people. Um, but I think it'll be a very narrow and weak pathway. Mm. Uh, one of the big ideas is we don't love other people. Other people show us where love is. So love is a never flowing, uh, you know, entity or experience uh, that we create pathways with other people. So it's really more so about the idea that we can feel love from other people and we can experience it and, and create a bond and a connection with other people. Um, but the the strength of that bond really depends on our relationship with ourselves. And how do we know then when it's real? Is there is there's no metric? I mean, there can't be. It's not an algorithm. Um, there's a beautiful quote that I include in the book from uh, Naval Ravikant that says, you know, love love is what remains when all other emotions are gone. Mm. And, you know, it's really this idea that we have to let go of things to experience love. So when we say, you know, how is love real? It's more so the idea of are we misinterpreting the things that we think are love? Attention, validation, attraction, power, control, safety. A lot of these things, we, we you know, we'll chase these things thinking that they're love, codependency. Um, so really the question that people should be asking is how do I feel around this person? Mm -hmm. um, you know, love isn't something that you receive or that you earn. It's not a prize. You know, it's, it's the, it's the default. It's the not wanting more. And I think as we experience that, and, and also the best thing to do is look at the metrics of genuine love. We know we have, whether it's for a parent, whether it's for a child, um, the type of love that we experienced that didn't require any work to get there. You hold, you know, I think about holding my baby niece for the first time and I was full of love instantly. You know, she didn't have to do anything or be anything to get that or earn that. And we didn't have to establish anything. That's what love is. You're listening to Humble the Poet on the Richard Krause Show. His book, How to Be Loved, is available for pre-order now wherever you buy fine books. In modern relationships, we have to look at love much more as the fuel to work mm -hmm. on the relationship. Um, instead of the glue. I think there's a big idea that, oh, if you love someone, everything will just work out. It's like, no, love is what's going to make you work your butt off <laughs> to make sure it works out. Because coexisting with somebody, living with somebody, sharing chores with somebody, sharing finances with somebody, you know, love, love, love's not an answer to these things. Love is just a fuel for you to have those uncomfortable conversations to deal with that stuff. Do you think that social media and the idea that we get a thousand likes on a picture and so that must mean that they really love us has changed our uh, relationship with the idea of love? I think most definitely. I think, you know, growing up when we talked about the coolest kid in school, you know, it, it was still an arbitrary idea. And now there's mm -hmm. like metrics, there's exact numbers, there's <laughs> followers, there's all of this. And, and the crazy thing too, is these numbers and, and these, these likes and these comments, they're not even based on who you are. They're based on an algorithm that's designed to keep people on the platform. So mm -hmm. really when you, when you measure yourself on social media, you're measuring how well am I keeping this business afloat? How well am I keeping people excited to be on this platform more so than anything else? And it subtly tells you what people want. And at the end of the day, you know, it's an attention economy. So what people want is stuff that grabs their attention. It's like rubbernecking a, a, a car accident, you know, on, on the road. So, you know, you start to post things and start to measure your worth based on how much engagement it got. That's going to subtly tell you who you need to be to continually get engagement. 
um, and that's taking you further away from your authentic self. So now you're you're, you're pretty much outsourcing, you know, your your personal value to other people, and, and that's really self esteem, um, where self love is really going to be revealed in self respect. Um, which is going to come from the hard things that you do to make yourself proud of yourself. Do you ever wonder uh, if maybe you're oversharing or if you're giving away parts of you uh, to the public in a way that that makes you feel uncomfortable? I think the irony of it is some advice I've recently received from my therapist was to to share more and to be more <laughs> vulnerable. <laughs> um, so I think that there's an irony there. I think what I learned, I think, you know, I grew up, you know, I grew up in Toronto. I grew up in Rexdale. I went to school in, in, in the challenging side of Rexdale. And, you know, for, for a lot of young men, you know, vulnerability was seen as a weakness. Mm. So we really kind of hit ourselves. And I think even as somebody who, who writes well and puts words together well, I was still able to initially be very strategic with it and not view it as therapeutic, but view it very performatively. I'm going to, oh, I, I know what I can share. And then you start to realize things that you don't consider are a big deal worth sharing other people would never do. Um, I'm learning now that the only way, you know, I crave depth, I crave authenticity, I crave all of that. Every moment that I've ever had of that depth and authenticity came from vulnerability. Mm. Um, even before I was an artist, when I was going through trouble and asking people for help, whether I messed up financially or messed up in my personal life. And, you know, so, so for me now, it's really about craving that connection with as many people as possible. I've, I've been in this game if you call it long enough to realize I don't have fans. I have readers. I have people that mm. appreciate my work. I'm not trying to be a celebrity. I'm trying to, I'm trying to add value to this world with the thing that I do do best, which I practice the most, which is putting words together. So I think for me, um, it is really important to be authentic. I don't think I've shared enough. I think sharing too much and, and, and my process for sharing right now is share as much as you can, especially in the first draft and then worry about it later. I think it's important. I, and I think especially um, I've been really kind of welcomed into the wellness space uh, with open arms, especially here. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles right now. And one thing I really noticed with a lot of people here is they they really speak this linear story of, uh, hey, I used to be really messed up. And then I figured out the solution. And now I'm not messed up. And for 1995, you can learn my secrets. And I was like, oh, that's not, you know, that's not how I was raised in this like linear mindset. It's, yeah. For me, it's cyclical. So it's like, for me, my story is, hey, I messed up. I made a lot of mistakes. I'm doing work to figure that out. Here's what I've learned. And now um, I'm still messed up, but we're figuring this out together. And, and and in the book, I actually, the last chapter, I equate the entire book to, um, I'm just explaining the differences between broccoli and French fries <laughs> and what's healthier, what's more nutritious why we like one over the other. And I'm like, and while I'm writing the book, I'm eating broccoli and French fries out of the same plate. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a love guru. I'm not a, I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm, I'm the kid at the front of the class who's taking notes and doesn't mind sharing. You've been listening to Humble the Poet on the Richard Krauss Show. His book, How to Be Loved, is available now for pre-order wherever you buy fine books. As we get closer to award season, there is an embarrassment of riches of movies playing in theaters and on the streamers this month. In this segment, we meet two of the stars of two of the season's best movies. First, let's meet Brendan Fraser. 
In his first leading role in a decade, he's garnering Oscar buzz for playing a 600-pound man trying to reconnect with his daughter in The Whale. The specter of death hangs over every frame of The Whale, and yet Fraser manages to bring optimism to a character not long for this world. He's looking to set things straight and make sure that his daughter will have the tools to have a decent life after he goes. It is a tremendous performance that soars, transcending the stage-bound nature of the story. Here's my conversation with Brendan Fraser. I have a quote, Brendan, from you from Vanity Fair, and it says that you took this role in part because I wanted to know what I was capable of. What did you learn about maybe yourself or your craft that felt different than shooting other films that you've been in. It takes an incredibly strong person to inhabit the body that Charlie does by simple virtue that I could take all that apparatus off at the end of the day, but I still had a sort of swimming, undulating sense of almost vertigo. It stayed with me and it it gave me a, a real visceral appreciation or understanding of those who live with eating disorders or obesity and and I think that judging by the response that we're seeing from the whale um, I think that it's also reorienting the way people feel about those who live with that and it does my heart good (laughs) that 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 changed me Brendan you talked about seeing the suit that you wear the prosthetic suit that you wear for the first time Tell me a little bit about that. I, I understand that it took like seven hours to put it on in the totality. At first, the, yeah. the tests were about yeah, around that time, just learn how to do it more and more. Adrian Moreau, Canada's own, I should say, um, got it down to like two, two and a half with uh, almost like a pit crew ability oh, yeah. as I could snooze in the chair at four o'clock in the morning. But this is a, a costume and makeup. Um, that hasn't been done that I am aware of, and I looked at a lot of bodysuits over the years, and this one obeys gravity and has respect for physics and uh, uses that uh, reality to inform the performance, to perform the performer instead of the other way around. And so I, I suppose after the first day, you must have had a different understanding of what it would be to be that size by wearing that suit. When it came off, I still had a sense yeah. of uh, like, like vertigo yeah. almost, and um, and and a deeper appreciation for those who can't remove an apparatus as you know as quickly. And, you know, four or five hours in, one hour out, I I, I felt I was living it, and um, that was clearly helpful to play the role. Um, and everything else I needed to know were Sam's words and Darren's direction. A director is really just the man who tells you where to go and how to get there. And he tells you what to say along the way. And I felt good hands in that regard. That was Brendan Fraser on The Whale. The Whale starts its run in theaters on December 21st. Now let's meet Janelle Monet, the Grammy-nominated singer, rapper, and actor, is one of the stars of Glass Onion, the sequel to the 2019 hit Knives Out. In the movie, tech billionaire Miles Braun, kind of an Elon Musk character, invites his friends for a getaway on his private Greek island. When someone turns up dead, Detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, is put on the case. Here's Janelle Monet on Glass Onion. 
I've been following your career for a long time and it's so varied. You do so many different things. I assume each project takes up a lot of your time. So how do you decide on how you're going to divide that time and choose a project like Glass Onion? Clone. That's it? You just have to uh, find a way to be everywhere at once? That's it. You have to find an investor and you have to get a clone. (laughs) 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 What was it about Glass Onion that brought you in? Ryan Johnson. It started with him, honestly. Um, I've been wanting to work with him for so long since I saw his film, Looper. Mm -hmm. And then I went down a rabbit hole of watching everything he had done. And, you know, when I read the script, I was blown away. His material, his writing, his thoughtfulness, his meticulousness, like everything. He's really just a remarkable writer and and director. And uh, once I saw, I read the script, the twist, the turns, I love whodunits, murder mysteries. Like, that's my thing. I'm always doing a murder mystery party with my friends and my family. Like, uh, um, and once I saw the character that he had in mind for me, I was just blown away. I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. We're going to have a lot of fun and room to play. And, you know, as an actor, I'll get an opportunity to really Mm -hmm. showcase range. And you always want to, like, go to that next level as an actor. And I'm just so fortunate and so humbled that he trusted me. Um, and I get a chance to have this experience with a cast. Let me, first of all, let me say cast. The cast here is so top tier, like Daniel Craig, obviously iconic um, in this, in his role as Benoit Blanc, Edward Norton, Kate, like Catherine, Leslie, Jess, Madeline, like Dave, all of them, like remarkable human beings. So I, I, yeah, this is just a dream ensemble and a, and, and a dream come true to just be a part of this project. You have lots of scenes with Daniel Craig. Tell me a little bit about uh, working with him and bouncing ideas and and that incredibly clever dialogue. This is a movie you can watch a few times and get something new from, I think, every time, in particular in the scenes between the two of you. So tell me a little bit about forming those scenes. Sure. No, Daniel is a hard worker. And, and, mm-hmm. and like myself, he likes to rehearse. And I think, Ryan, we like to just be prepared and so that gives us that freedom to play Mm. so we had a lot of fun with our scenes together and trusting each other and he's so giving as a as a scene partner like there were moments where he would just could be at lunch during when it was time for my coverage or any close-ups but he came back and was like hey what do you need and you know just so cool and it's the coolest thing watching him switch from his british accent (laughs) his southern draw you know that's right that was the bad British thing, um, accent I tried to do, but watching him go back and forth between that is just like masterful. Yeah. You mentioned that you like to do murder mysteries. I've never heard of werewolf and assassin, but apparently that's one of the games that you play. Yes. It's a card game. So it's a deck of cards and the, each card has like, if you're the killer, you get the werewolf card. You can be the doctor. You, it depends on which game you, you, you get, but pick it up. It's so fun. Like I, yeah. It's it's my jam. <laughs> well, and, that's and we of... played murder mystery parties while we were in in Greece and in in um in uh, Serbia as well because we COVID obviously was mm. like the numbers were going up and we had to stay together to make sure that we did not catch COVID and we had to entertain ourselves so we did we played murder mystery games we sang we drank we really got a chance to bond and know each other and I'm so ha- happy that happened because I think that a lot of that showed up on screen. 
That was Janelle Monet. You can see her in Glass Onion, which will be on Netflix a little bit later on this month. Big thanks to Janelle. Also, a big thanks to Brendan Fraser. The Whale is in theaters on December 21st. I'd also like to thank Humble the Poet. His book, How to Be Loved, is available for pre-order wherever you pre-order fine books. A thanks to Anuka Akuma. See her on the CBC show Working Moms. And a big thanks to Teddy Wilson. Watch his show The Mightiest on the Discovery Channel. I promised you a big show, and I think I delivered. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 